Last week, I ended what I was talking about by describing, and the whole thing we talked about was the kindness and severity of God, right? And what it means to remain in his kindness. And I gave just a boatload of scripture, as I am tended to do, is give a ton of scripture, about what that looks like and why that's important. And that when we don't remain in his kindness, we end up in his severity. And his severity is still his attempt to save you. But it is severe. And I point you to Israel so you can look at Israel and see what his severity looks like in his attempt to save his chosen people. And at the end of that, we brought it to this point, essentially, where I was saying this. That, remember I used the example of the, the, the mice that were put in the tubes of water and it was over their head and they... They were able to swim for about 45 minutes, preserving themselves until their bodies completely gave out and they just sank. And before they drowned, the, the people rescued them and put them and gave them a break. It was like an hour or less. It was like 45 minutes or an hour. They just gave them a rest period and then put them back in the tube to see how long they could go a second round. And they shocked everybody and they, they went six days afterwards. So they went 45 minutes on their initial full-strength effort, and then after being totally wiped out and to the point where they were willing to drown because they didn't have the strength to stay afloat, they took a short break, put them in, and they lasted six days. And the conclusion of this ongoing experiment that they did was that, in in these mice at least, that when they, once they knew that there would be someone coming to rescue them eventually, they endured way longer than when they initially had to survive with no hope of rescue. And so the powerful message here that relates to Hebrews 11 and 12 that I tied it to was this, that faith, genuine faith, supernaturally empowers us. When we have real faith, we can do supernatural things. There are things that people with faith can do that people without faith just cannot do. And that when we have real faith that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he'll do, we can persevere to the end. All the way to the end. We can endure hardship like others cannot. We can persevere through things that would cause other people's mind and soul and heart to snap But for those who are in Christ, they can endure till the end. For those with a hope for a greater resurrection, they can sing worship songs to the Lord while their body is literally melting on a pyre. They can endure the terror and fear of animals, giant lions and bears coming to to tear them to pieces for the sport of an audience. Well, others literally paralyzed in fear and terror because to them, death is the greatest fear. But for those who are approved in their faith, who know that they are living for a greater resurrection, they can literally worship in the face of terrorizing death because their salvation is nearer now than when they first believed. That type of reality... And that, that was the thing, like this rat experiment, mouse experiment, whatever it was, like provoked in my heart. I was like, yes, that is what real faith does. It is the substance 
of something we're hoping for. And these mice, they experienced the substance of what they now knew they could hope for. And it became faith to them that they would be rescued. And it caused them to act accordingly. And that was the heart of what I was talking about. And I want to go into, into this reality. What does this faith, this, what does approved faith look like when we are living from that? Because it should be drastically different, right? It should look as different as 45 minutes does to six days. That's the type of difference genuine approved faith makes in the life of a believer. And so I want to go in and look at that, especially from the lens of, of this. If we, those of us who are walking in genuine approved faith, We know that God is victorious and He is going to have a bride, a pure and spotless bride. He is going to have His harvest. He is going to have His reward. And He has chosen to use us. And He has called us and said, I will empower you. Those of us with real faith actually believe that. And so we live according to that. Those of us with approved faith, we believe that God will supply every need we have to do that. Those of us with approved faith, we believe that we are just passing through here, that we are just pilgrims on a journey, that we are looking forward to a, to a home, to a city whose builder and maker is God, and that we have a short short few hours before the dawn to win the victories for the Lord in this time. And so if we genuinely believe that, our lives will demonstrate it. It's just pure and simple. It doesn't need to be harped on as often as we harp on it because it's so simple. It's just common sense. And I don't know how else to, to communicate it as any simpler than that. It's like, if you genuinely believe this, it will be demonstrated in clear and obvious ways. But if you don't genuinely believe this, it will also be demonstrated in very clear and obvious ways. And so one of the biggest frustrations of leadership is when people are saying, no, I genuinely, definitely believe this but it is being demonstrated in very clear and obvious ways that they don't. And what do you do with that? What you do with that is you look at Scripture and say, how has God dealt with most humans through all of history? With great grace, with overflowing and abundant love, and with kindness and severity in the discipline and training. And as humans, we then intercede and pray and say, God, or in Sean's famous words, God knows where you sleep. I'm going to pray for him to get you. I had a statement when I was thinking about what to preach on, and this was a statement. It was this, good doctrine is not good doctrine if it's not lived out in the power it possesses. 
And I wanted to summarize that because I want to talk about training. We're putting out Sunday School, Redemptive History, First Love, Encounters, our internship launches this week. Our first love, I mean, our, our first principles pushing, our life groups, all, all of this is for the equipping and training of the saints to know Jesus and make him known, in a nutshell. And at the core of that is what the apostles refer to as doctrine, traditions, the teachings that have been passed down, right? The creeds, the, the teachings of Christ and his apostles is what we refer to as the doctrine of the faith. And doctrine means set of teachings. And it's very simple to start. And it, there's so much debate between the two because of all the baggage attached to it. But it's really simple. Doctrine is good teaching. Good teaching is how we gain knowledge and understanding and wisdom. From the place of good knowledge, good understanding, and wisdom, we then live and move in the power that that is meant to impart. And so there shouldn't be a clash between doctrine and power. They are hand in hand. They go together. The whole book of Proverbs literally exists to like communicate that fact. And so I wanted to read a lot about it. But I want you to hear this statement because this is the statement that's going to resonate throughout the message. Good doctrine is not good doctrine if it is not lived out in the power that good doctrine possesses. Do you understand? You can know all the teachings. You can have the Bible memorized. And you can lead every class and teach knowledge in the most amazing ways. But if it is not being lived out, demonstrated in the purpose of what that is meant to lead to, it's not good doctrine. You can't even claim it's good doctrine, even though you can get every question on a test correct. Because good doctrine, by definition, requires more than just knowing the information. Is that clear? If that's not clear, you're going to be lost for the rest of the message. So raise your hand if you need more clarification. Good doctrine is not good doctrine. Unless it is lived out in the power that good doctrine possesses. So the book of Jude, it's one chapter. That's it. And this book started with the author who wanted to, he, he writes this, he says, Dear friends, although I was eager, eager, excited, compelled, eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it more necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. It's such a powerful opening statement. Because he's saying, man, I was really excited. I wanted to talk about our common salvation, how great it is. Like when I think about our salvation and how we've been saved and why we're saved, it's exciting. And I just wanted to write and confirm and affirm all that to you. But I felt a greater need, which was to write to you and appeal to you to contend, which means to fight for, to stand for, to defend, to to propel 
the faith. And not just any faith, but the one that was delivered to us at one time, meaning it's not been delivered multiple times, there was one faith given to us, and it was given for all. It's one. It's not open to interpretation. It's really clear in Scripture. There's one faith, and it's in detail. And all we have to do is dig into it to learn it. Because we must know it if we're going to contend for it. And I promise you that in our day, right now, in this time, in this location, there has never been a greater need for the church to contend for the faith. Not only in our culture, but in the church. I promise you that if you went to 50% of the churches within a two-mile radius, not a two-mile, it's short, within a, a half-hour radius of this, and you ask the majority of the leaders in any of the churches to describe to you what the faith is, you would get different answers, scattered answers, all over the place, and some of them would just make you scratch your head. It's just really because even amongst leadership, which we'd expect it wouldn't be the case, but it is, the Bible is dusty. It's dusty. There's so many alternative options with so many podcasts, why do I need to read my Bible? There's so many good books out there that tell you about what the Bible says, why do I need to read the Bible? I mean, just as a quick answer, guys, I can tell you, because none of those books are living. None of those books are the living, preserved, passed down word of God, discerning between your soul and your spirit. It's what it does. And you wouldn't know that. It's one of those things where you had to be there to, to get it type thing. It's you have to read it to understand what that means. You have to experience it for yourself. And it's super critical. And that's the point. Well, this guy, Jude, who started his letter by saying that, contend for the faith, he also, when he's bringing his letter to conclusion, one of his final points is this. He says, but you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith. He starts by saying, I need to appeal to you and really push for you to contend for the faith that was passed down to you. And at the end, he says, I really need you guys to be making sure you're building yourself up in this most holy faith. And everything he wrote in between was a big warning about these people who were coming into the church families and deceptively misleading them and leading them to destruction, subtly blaspheming the things of God and speaking ill and, about, and spreading bitterness and corruption. But, guys, he didn't have to write to them because this stuff was just so painfully obvious. He wrote to them because it wasn't painfully obvious to them. These were people in the community. Co-workers, friends, people you shared life with. Your kids may have played together. But because they were so not rooted in the faith and so subject to winds and waves and different things that would toss them astray, they believed crazy things and began to spread it. 
And Jude, hearing about these things, says, hey, I really wanted to talk about how awesome our salvation was, but when I heard, I really felt the need to write to you to know that you need to contend for the faith, and not just any faith, the one that was given to you from the apostles, specifically, once and for all, contend for it, and make sure that you are building yourself up in this thing so that you can contend for it. What does this look like? Proverbs 9, this chapter right here, listen to what it says. Proverbs uses, uses allegory and analogy, or um, it basically it takes, takes a concept like wisdom and speaks of it as a woman, a female and a woman that's been with God from the beginning, referring to wisdom. So in chapter 9, that's... that's he picks up on that, continues with that theme, and he says, Wisdom has built her house. She has carved out her seven pillars. She has prepared her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her female servants. She has called out from the highest points of the city. And this is what she's calling out. Whoever is inexperienced, enter here. To the one who lacks sense, she says, come, eat my bread and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave inexperience behind and you will live. Leave inexperience behind and you will live. It's quite a saying, right? What, is it, what does it even mean to leave inexperience behind? Think about that. Leave it behind and you will live. Pursue the way of understanding. It's so easy to pass up these languages, but she's not saying gain understanding casually as you do whatever else you're doing. She says pursue it. And that's kind of the key of Proverbs. Pursue the way of understanding. The one who corrects a mocker will bring abuse on himself. She's saying this as a negative. The one who rebukes the wicked will end up hurt. Don't rebuke a mocker, or he will hate you. Rebuke the wise, and he will love you. Do you hear that? It would be negligent to not stop right here and talk about it for a second. Do you hear what it says about someone who's wise? It says, if you rebuke the wise, they'll love you for it. What does that say about us when we get rebuked and how we respond? Just think about that. Think about yourself, rhetorical question between you and the Holy Spirit. Do you, are you someone who loves a person who rebukes you? According to Scripture, that's the mark of a wise person. And the mark, the mark of a fool and a mocker is someone who hates someone who rebukes them. And you're like, yeah, but the people who rebuke me, they're awful, they do it wrong, they're cruel, they're not sensitive. Such a sad story. Such a sad story. If only every rebuke could come in the most gentlest way with a warm breeze and a hug and a bowl of ice cream afterwards. 
That would be nice. But it doesn't make any qualifications here. It just says a wise person receives rebuke and will love the person for it. Instruct the wise and he will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and he will learn more. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, wisdom speaking, your days will be many and years will be added on to your life. And I want you to understand, at the end of this entire section, this is what they put on the pillar as the most valuable things to be gaining. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And by these things, many years will be added to your life and you will be known as wise. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding. Now I'm just going to fly through some more Proverbs verses and other verses and, and just, I want you to listen for those key trigger words. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding. The fear of the Lord is also the beginning of knowledge. Look at that. In two different Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Nope, they choose to follow their own way. Thanks, but I know better. I'm good. That's, this is what Proverbs says marks a person known as wisdom or foolish. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. Man, this has a lot to say about what the fear of the Lord brings, huh? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. And humility comes before honor. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Guys, where can we find a record of the things that come from his mouth? Anyone know? If you could give me a hint, give us all a hint, it might be helpful because we are like pursuing this thing, hardcore. That'd be super helpful if it was all just wrapped up in like one place. Lots of podcasts where you can find it all. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your path straight. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found. But a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But the humble, but with the humble is wisdom. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. How much better to get wisdom than gold? I wish we believed that. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. I wish we believed that. 
The discerning sets his face towards wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. And I love this one, guys. This one speaks so loud. Just think about it. This one speaks to the youth and to the young people and those of us who still haven't matured past a certain stage. But it's really clear, right? The discerning, meaning that person who can see and know what's right, sets his face towards gaining wisdom. But the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. All the great grand things to be done, to be conquered, to be achieved, to be reached. The ends of the earth. I have so much. But it's the discerning and the wise who pursue wisdom. Knowing that from wisdom is where those things are going to come from anyway. The Lord is looking to use the wise. And not those who are wise in their own eyes. And then the ends of the earth will come, but it's the foolish, which oftentimes, not all the time, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of old people in this generation who are giving the youth the run for their money in terms of foolishness. But often, it goes hand in hand with youthfulness. And it's them who want to go and conquer. And this is, you know, we do a disservice in the church when we take those youthful, zealous people and we just send them to the ends of the earth long before they've gained wisdom understanding, knowledge, experience. But I'm not preaching about that today. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. There is gold in abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Buy truth. In other words, you're saying purchase it, like with money. Buy truth. And do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. It's literally saying, spend your possessions on gaining these things. Ecclesiastes says this, For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has wisdom. Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, says this, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is Isaiah prophesying about the Messiah coming, Jesus. And the Spirit of God himself will rest upon him. It will be the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Literally, Isaiah, in one sentence, in one prophecy, just hit every single trigger word of the entire book of Proverbs and said, the Spirit of of the Lord will be the Spirit of these things. (laughs) There's a reason why wisdom in the book of Proverbs is saying the pursuit of all these things is worth more than anything else. It is seamless. It is one. The Spirit of the Lord is wisdom is knowledge, is understanding, is discernment. Now, if only the Spirit of the Lord gave us clear instructions and teachings on how to gain those things and know Him better. If only we had a place where we could pursue with diligence 
in a, in a more fervent way than we pursue gold and silver and possessions, then we might come to know the Spirit of the Lord in His wisdom and knowledge and understanding and as the natural byproduct, His power. Romans eleven thirty three. Paul speaking about this says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable are His ways. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in his age, in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And this is where the church really, I think, hits the stumbling block. Because we're not intimately acquainted with the Word enough. Right? There's, there's so many of us who even feel like we know the Word enough because we grew up with it. And we haven't searched it though. We haven't thrown ourselves into the study of pursuing the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding and the discernment that comes literally from reading it with the Word, with the Spirit. I'm not talking about doing a devotional. I'm not talking about reading through it as you pray some. I'm talking about pursuing it as if you would pursue gold and silver if you were told right where it is. If you were told that you were given a map and said right here and it's yours, all you have to do is go dig it up. That type of pursuit is what I'm talking about. That is almost wholly absent. Do you know when America was founded? This is just a side note. When America was founded, the great universities of Harvard and Yale and so many were just as stringent in their requirements for study. It was brutal study. To get a degree, to be certified through them, you had to earn it. And you had to become a master of the content. And you know they were seminaries. Harvard emerged, Yale emerged in order to equip the people who are founding America in the Word of God and the knowledge of God in how to govern according to the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding and the discernment of God. That was how severely people pursued it. But now, today... The church is full, and I mean full, guys, full of degrees in liberal arts, general arts, science, math, business, and not just degrees, master's degrees, doctorates, PhDs, and almost completely absent of a single degree in anything related to Scripture or the Bible or pursuing the knowledge and the wisdom and the understanding of God. Remember, it's a symptom. It's not blaming. This isn't a judgment on anybody. I'm just saying it's a symptom 
of generations of church. And as a result, we are wholly devoid of the knowledge and wisdom and understanding and discernment of the Lord. But we are full of the wisdom and understanding and knowledge of this age and this world. And we, we do church according to those things. And that's why it's so hard to genuinely submit to godly leadership and to follow vision and to follow plans when it gets hard and when it gets challenging. Because the wisdom of this world and the understanding of this world is take care of yourself, preserve yourself, control yourself, govern yourself, protect yourself, set up the boundaries that preserve your own self. When the wisdom of the, wor- of the, of the Lord literally preaches the opposite. And it creates such a fierce clash within the church and within the people of God. But God is really clear to declare from the mountaintops that His ways are not our ways. And His thoughts are not our thoughts. Because His thoughts and His ways are so far above ours. Yet we continually lean and trust in our own understanding. And we rage against counsel and wisdom and rebuke because it disagrees with what we want. And the Bible describes us as mockers, brawlers, and fools. Remember I said at the beginning, like it's really, really a common sense thing. What we believe is clearly, obviously, and easily seen by what we do. It's just clear. Jesus said it like this, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. He just said it can't. Anyway, listen to what Colossians says. This is an encouraging one. This is like vision casting, guys. Colossians says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's the stuff all Proverbs was saying is worth more than gold and silver and find you all this stuff and what is the whole word of God from Old Testament New is saying pursue at all costs, give your life to this, stop your own ambitions, pursue the ambitions of the Lord, stop your own pursuits, your own understanding, stop trusting and leaning on that, trust the Lord and pursue his knowledge, his understanding, his wisdom. It's all right here and he wraps it up by saying, guys, it's Christ, in him is hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because Isaiah told us that the Spirit of the Lord would be on Jesus, who is the Spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Hosea warned one time this, my people are destroyed. This is why God's people were being destroyed. Because of a lack of knowledge. And not only that, because they rejected knowledge. Because knowledge oftentimes comes in the, ref- in the form of rebuke and correction and discipline. They rejected it. And so he said, I rejected them from being a priest to me. That's serious. I want to skip to the punchline here. 
The punchline is this. Knowledge and wisdom and understanding and rebuke and counsel and correction and discipline and training, they're all means to an end. They are means that are to be pursued at all costs above everything else. It's the, it's, the Bible literally describes it as the pursuit of Christ. And this is what we have to wrap our minds around. Christ in him is the fullness of all the riches of wisdom and knowledge and understanding and discernment. Yet the Bible is still abundantly clear that you should be pursuing those things. And then it says, here's some insight, guys. By pursuing those things, you are pursuing Christ. Because all of it is unto the purpose and the conclusion of knowing Him. I'm going to repeat that just so you get the punchline of the entire message. All of it, all of it is unto the purpose of knowing Him. Remember, sound doctrine isn't sound doctrine unless it is lived out in the power that it possesses. And the power that it possesses is that it brings you to the knowledge of God, into relationship with Him. You find them in Him, and then you know Him, right? To know Him and to make Him known are the ultimate goals. That's what Jesus said. All the law and the prophets can be summed up in this. To know Him and to make Him known. I know that's a paraphrase of it, but go read it. That's what it's saying. And so if we believe If we believe that knowing Him is our highest good, it's our highest goal, if we genuinely believe that, like that's genuine faith, this is approved faith, we believe that He is who He says He is and that what He says is true, and that our highest aim, our highest joy, our highest fulfillment is in knowing Him, being with Him, then the the practical fruit, the evidence that would be clearly on display would be the pursuit And I mean the the diligent pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Do you see how that is kind of clear? And so, if our life is not clearly bearing the fruit of such approved faith, our question should be, what is it we should do? What then do we do in response to such a clear and evidential deficit? What? Yeah. That's why I went to the punchline. I, I felt your breath on my neck. I want, I, want to, I want to really sum it up with that, that concept, though. This is the part, like, in my mind when I'm preaching, this is it. Talk is cheap. You guys familiar with that phrase? Talk is cheap. And empty faith is cheap. Empty faith is just talk. It's the whole point of James. Read James chapter 2. His whole point is this, that faith without works is dead. In other words, it's not approved. You will not be saved 
by faith that does not have the demonstrated evidential works corresponding to it. It doesn't mean you're saved by your works. It just means that faith is inseparable from the works. Is that very clear? James even makes the point to say, you say, well, you have faith and I have works. And James says, that doesn't work. I will show you my faith by my works. And that's the point. Read that because he goes on to say a lot more. He says, was not Abraham approved by his works? Whoa, whoa, what about grace? What about by faith alone? Read your Bible. That's all I'm saying. Go read your Bible. Abraham was approved by his works. Why? Because it was the demonstration that his faith was actually genuine. That's it. In other words, you can say you have faith, but without the corresponding works, you don't have faith. And remember I told you Jude started by saying, like, contend for the faith? This is critical. So all that to say this, guys, this is the assessment we have to do. Is your faith approved or is it empty? Let your life decide. Let your life give you the answer. And more so, do this. If you really are sincere, if your faith is genuine, go to a handful of people that you trust, that you look to right now, and you say, I believe they are walking in approved faith. I think the fruit of their life shows that they are walking in genuine faith. They have a faith before God. They believe God and their life demonstrates it. Go to a handful of those people and say, can I ask you a favor? Can you please do an honest assessment of my life and the fruit you see in my life? And I want you to be honest. And can you tell me if you see the fruit of a genuine approved faith in my life? And if you don't, I want to know because I do not want to be a person in that place. I do not want to be someone who's still walking in the deception of believing that I am right and good before God, when really I'm only right and good before the wisdom of this world as taught by American Christianity. Are you willing to do that? Do you have the guts to do that? This is what you do right now. The first and foremost place you go is to the Lord. And you say, God, soften my heart. Because I'm telling you, we're talking real, right? If we're just saying, hey, here's the truth of Scripture, do it. No hugs necessary, right? It's just the truth. You have to deal with it. But in real life, we're human beings and some of us need hugs when we hear these messages. So come to the Lord and get hugged, okay? And ask the Lord while he's hugging you to give you the grace you need to receive real truth in your heart to receive the truth you need to hear for your own eternal state. And I know that sounds severe, but it is. It's true. Do you know how many people are going to stand before the Lord and call him Lord, Lord? And say, I did so many good things in your name. And he's like, you missed the boat. You weren't, you weren't doing them for me. You weren't worshiping me. I never knew you. Is it even worth the risk of being in that place? No. 
So prep your hearts right now. The worship team's going to do what the worship team does, and then we're going to believe that the Holy Spirit's going to do what the Holy Spirit does, which is confront your heart, challenge it, hug it, and then give it truth. So right now, just begin to brace for it. But here's the thing. I want you to just be honest with yourself and say, God, give me the hard truth. And if you can't say that, if you're in a place where you're like, I can't say, I'm too afraid to say that, then come up and get prayer with people who can support you and pray with you that God will give you the grace to sincerely say that. And if you're not willing to do that, then just leave. You're wasting your time here. You might come and get goosebumps and feel good about it, but if you're not willing to do that, you are not following Jesus and you're not willing to. So go do something better with your time. I don't like that, Steve. He's so mean and brutal. I'm just trying to save you so the short time you have left before fearful expectation of judging. You might as well go enjoy it. Unless you really enjoy hearing me preach that much, fine, stay. But for the rest of you guys, listen, if you're willing, then come up and get prayer if you're in that place. And if you're not, then go after God in this. If you, if, you're not, if you feel like your faith is approved and you're willing to ask people, ask God to set your heart ablaze right now. That you would be one of the people ready and willing to give your life away to those who need you. You understand? If you're not someone who needs to come up for prayer, then you're someone who should be ready for action to give your life away to those who need you. Because that's the call of partnering with Christ. And that's the call of this message right here. Be willing to pursue the knowledge and wisdom and discernment and understanding of the Lord. Sign up for the classes you need to sign up for. Get entrenched in life groups. Get entrenched in everything you can do to learn more and to, to experience the truth of God and his presence in the midst of it. I'm telling you, when I got first saved, I used to sneak into women's conferences and gatherings and sit in the back row. Because all I wanted to do was be around anywhere where there was preaching or ministry. So let's just do that right now. Everyone stand up because you know it's not your comfort zone and that's the thing. It activates, right? It's the point of this message is that faith has to be activated by action. Deeds must be done for faith to be genuine. And as we begin to seek God and pray into this, remember that it's faith that will motivate you. It's faith that will empower you to swim for six days instead of 45 minutes. Let's have the prayer guys come up now in case people want to respond right away. If you're a prayer person, if you have approved faith, come on up. And if you, if you come up and you really don't, we'll talk to you afterwards. I'm just kidding. Everyone come up and pray. Guys, this is a time to come up and get prayer. If you're someone there, because this is a hard prayer to say before God, but it's needed. God, give me the grace to embrace the hard truth of things that need to shift and need to change and need to change now. Don't waste another moment. Let's just begin to engage with God right now. Go after it. <clears throat>